Um, I thought what I might do is introduce myself before I start, because not everybody will know who I am. And I had to write a bio recently for a um, mission I'm about to go on in in March, so I thought I'd read it to you, because that's the most succinct and quickest way of describing who I am. It's in the third person, but that's what they wanted. So, sorry, excuse me, I've got a bit of a cold. so. So, Mark Gilpin is married to Fiona. They have five children, aged 11 to 19. Mark helped leads the evangelism strategy at Eastgate and works as an IT consultant. Both Mark and Fiona love to travel and experience the diversity of different cultures. Mark activates people in their God-given identity and destiny. Mark is also passionate about creating an evangelistic slipstream, enabling others to supernaturally speak about Jesus confidently and courageously. Mark loves to bring the reality of God to unbelievers wherever he is. So that, that's who I am, and that's what I'm about. Okay, if you would describe yourself as an evangelist or have an evangelistic gift, do you want to put your hand up? There's more of you than that. Some of you are closet. Um, I know a number of you, but I don't know all of you. What we're trying to do here at Eastgate is create a community of evangelistic gifted people um, so that we can connect and encourage one another. And we have a, um, a group on Facebook called Eastgate Evangelists. So if, you don't, if you're not part of that group, can I encourage you to contact me or my wife and, and we'll add you to it. Um, I want to talk about God's dream today. This is, um, this is like a, a 2.0 technology upgrade to my talk a couple of months ago. Um, so you're fortunate you're going to get a better version of it. Um, how many of you have got a dr- dreams or a dream list? Okay. And how many of you... Um, keep your hand up if this is true as well. I've seen what some of those dreams, or one of the, at least one of those dreams, fulfilled over the last 12 months. And those with your hands up, how many of you found you needed someone to partner with you to bring it about? Okay, it's most of your hands. Do you know that God has a dream? I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. I'm going to leave a bit of suspense. But God is looking for us to partner with him. To bring, out, bring about that dream. So it's amazing, isn't it, when you have your own dream and people partner with you to bring it about. But actually, God is looking for us to partner with him. So in 2012, Julian Adams, who a lot of you know, uh, prophesied over Fiona and myself and talked about homes for the broken and hurting within a, quite a long prophecy, most of which is actually unfolding in our lives right now, four years on. Um, and we didn't really know what that meant, but we've recently bought two houses as a rental business that we hope in time will turn into this, this prophecy. But that dream would not have come about if it wasn't for other people here who partner with us in this dream. So I'm going to mention you because I love you for it. Um, Rob Schultz got, got us started. Um, Cheryl Taylor crystallized some of our thoughts about our plan, and at the moment, Gary Taylor and Mark Henley are busily working on one of these houses to get it up and running into a rental business. And what's amazing about them both is they're not just doing work that we're paying them to do, obviously, but they actually have a passion for the dream we have. And they they bring much more to the table than just what I'm I'm paying them to do. And so I know and I, I value what it is for people to partner with me to bring about my dream. And there's something amazing that I'll unpack in the next half an hour, what it means to partner with God for his dream. Does that make sense? Okay. If you could shut your eyes for a moment, I want to just describe to you a scene 
And I want you to stir up your imagination and put yourself in that scene. So if you go shut your eyes, it's not complicated. So imagine you are in Israel at the time of Jesus, and you're on a mountain with Jesus, because that was often where he was talking to disciples. And you don't know this, but at the moment, he's about to ascend on a cloud and go to heaven. And he's, you can see on his face, because you've got to know him over three years, that he's about to say something that's important. He's about to bring a message that won't be for one individual, but will be for everybody in that group. <coughs> and this is what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. So stay in the moment. So you've been with this journey with Jesus for three years. There's been unexpected twists and turns. Jesus has brought incredible miracles. He then dies. He then comes back from the dead and angelic activity was around what's going on and suddenly he says this one line that he's going all these few lines and, and we get given what's called the great commission I'm not going to ask for a response now but when you hear the words of the great commission what does it generate in you is it a positive statement is it a negative statement excitement fear adventure or dread just have a think from, for a few more seconds before you open your eyes. Okay, you can open your eyes now. I would imagine across the room there's a range of different emotions when you, you hear those Bible verses. The question I want to ask you though is what was Jesus thinking when he said those words? Was he thinking? So when he was inviting everyone to the great task of reconciling the world to himself which is his dream. That's God's dream. And an uncountable number of people from every generation, every people group in world history in heaven. That's his dream. Just a small wee one. Um, Was it that when he looked at the people, when he gave that invitation to them, was it when he was looking at them that he thought they were going to be successful? Or was he thinking that they would find it hard not be very motivated and shy away from it. What do you think was in Jesus' mind? Think about the journey that Jesus had on earth. You see his birth, we just celebrated that at Christmas. You see his life, his death, his resurrection. Then out of the blue you get something called a great commission. Then he ascends to, hen- uh, he ascends to heaven and there's Pentecosts. There's seven key things in that plan. The great commission being the fifth. So the question is, is that step any less or more important than any of the other six? I would suggest to you in God's plan, they're all important. All of them are important, and I'm not going to try and play one off against the other. But when God came and created this plan of reconciling the world to himself, the plan would not have worked if he wasn't born. Would it? The plan wouldn't have worked if he didn't live his life on earth, if he didn't die, or if he wasn't resurrected, if he wasn't resurrected and ascended. But also, the plan wouldn't work without the Great Commission. So, in God's wisdom, the Great Commission is a good idea. Some of you <laughs> think that. 
So I think what the danger is, is because we sometimes have bad experiences of evangelism, we question God's plan. And we might think it's a weak part of his plan. We might not voice that, or acknowledge that, or reason that through, but that might be what is going on, a number of us. So my premise this morning, and this is the journey I want to take you on over the next 20 minutes, is that being evangelistic, and I'll define that shortly, is in the DNA of every believer. Simple as that. It's not something you have to go and get. It's in you. It just needs nurturing and encouraging. Because there's a massive difference between thinking I haven't got it to I have got it. And I'll get into that a bit later. There are very reasons why what I'm saying might not just click in your mind and think, of course, that's obvious. I would suggest to you that it's not the norm in all church cultures that everyone thinks are evangelistic. But it's not the norm in every church culture that equality of women is the norm either. Just because it's not in the norm doesn't mean it's not right. Okay? Evangelists in some churches motivate through guilt, which frankly turns people off. People derive lots of conclusions from negative experiences of evangelism. And you could derive that you're no good at it. I'm an evangelist. I've got lots of negative experiences of evangelism, but I don't derive I'm not any good at it. You might not have learned how to deal with fear. And probably most important, which is what we're trying to do here at Eastgate, is you haven't been equipped by a joy, adventure, and fun-filled evangelist. So if you come out on evangelism that Fiona or I organized, our, our, our top commandment is fun. Because I think that's what's in the DNA of being evangelistic. Yeah? I would suggest to you that evangelism is easy, straightforward, fun, filled, and an adventure. And if you've got any other reasoning around that, then I would suggest to you you don't share heaven's thinking on the subject. Okay? So just, just throw that out. So, so creating a church culture where all believers, that means all of us, feel equipped, confident, and able to share our faith is part of the evangelistic strategy at Eastgate. So this is a journey we're going to encourage you on in the coming months and years. And it's a journey I believe we can get to, to throw that in. Just a quick recap about an evangelist, because it's important to understand the difference between an evangelist and being evangelistic. So an evangelist, and my understanding biblically of an evangelist, and this is a really short definition, is it someone that breaks new ground, someone that mobilizes and motivates others to join their evangelistic adventures, they create an evangelistic slipstream for others so it's enjoyable, attractive, and easy. Let me just give you an example. I took a day off work just shortly before Christmas and joined a day school to do some evangelism. I was in a um, Starbucks coffee getting my um, treasure hunt clues, and there was a girl on, in the day school that I think it was the second time she's been treasure hunting. So I said to her, how can I make this a success for you? And she said to me, and she's young 20, she said to me, maybe you could do all the talking very honest, very real. So I said to her, I joked with her that I was a bit, she was a bit old for me to talk for her. Um, so we went out treasure hunting. Um, I went where my clues are. didn't really happen. Nothing really caught on. So we decided to go where, where her clues were. And she found these people outside. And all of her location clues and all of her description clues came together. She took the initiative, talked to these people. And I think 90% of all the clues on all of our maps mapped these people. And she went from someone that was afraid to someone that excelled at treasure hunting. And that's because the evangelists were creating a slipstream. 
You don't have to do this journey on your own. God has given a gift of the church to help you do that journey. To make it easy and straightforward. Just in the same way prophetic people help us to hear God. So you don't have to have all the answers. There's people here that can help you. But the most important thing about the evangelist is they're not set up by God to do all the evangelism. When it describes the evangelist in Ephesians 4, it doesn't say they do all the evangelism. I don't know if you've noticed that. So if you look at what's going on in Reading, UK, and many of you have heard the stories where nearly 2,000 people responded to um, a prayer and a response in a script that they had um, on the street. Do you know there wasn't a single appeal by an evangelist during that period? There wasn't even an evangelistic meeting where there could have been an appeal. It was just members of the church going out on the street and asking people if they wanted to accept Jesus into their life. The evangelist equipped the church. He didn't do the evangelism. So we've got to rewire some of our thinking about this. How many of you have gone on a journey from being um, a kind of thinking of yourself as a sinner to thinking of yourself as a royal saint? Okay. So I'm just going to demonstrate this. So if I think of myself as a sinner, I think of, I'm aware of my guilt, my condemnation, I feel insecure, I feel powerless. Okay, that's kind of what we're that. If I come on my journey and come over here, because this is the better side of the church, <laughs> so you're my royal saints, I feel secure, I feel loved, I live in freedom, I'm aware of God's presence, I'm now I'm a child, and my destiny just unro- un- you know, rolls out in front of me. There's a difference, isn't there? But we have to look inside of ourselves often and work out how we get from here to here. So many of you would have read, you know, read some books, meditated on some scripture, you would have got prayer about it, you might have hung out with people that were already royal, and you would have looked inside of your emotions to make that journey, wouldn't you? Many of you wouldn't have gone from there just in an instant. It would have taken a number of months. So we're going to do the evangelistic journey now. So this is a journey that I want to encourage many of you to go on and start this year. So if I don't think I've got evangelistic DNA, my perspective will be I'd, I leave evangelism to other people. My perspective I will be is I find evangelism hard, or it generates fear in me, or I won't know what to say. Does that make sense? But that's because you look at yourself as someone that hasn't got the DNA to be evangelistic. If I then do this journey over a number of months, over here... I will think of myself as having evangelistic DNA as part of my identity. doesn't matter what my gift mix is, doesn't matter what my gender, my race is, that's part of my born-again nature. I will know how to make the most of evangelistic opportunities, because it's part of who I am. Sharing my faith is a fun-filled adventure. I will get up in the morning and I will be excited about the opportunity to bring the kingdom of God wherever I am. I will know how to access courage from heaven. And being myself is the best way to be evangelistic. I don't have to copy anyone else. And partnering with God in bringing the world and reconciling the world to himself is the best dream that I can ever partner with. That's how I think if I'm evangelistic. I'm not talking about being an evangelist because evangelists think a bit different to that. They think about how to equip the church, how to break new ground, how to release missionaries and things like that. I'm talking about what it means to think as to be evangelistic. Thank you. Yeah, I've got a supporter. <laughs> so I want to encourage you that if you're over here somewhere, 
that this journey, just like sinner to saint, can go from not being evangelistic to being evangelistic over here and sitting on this side of the church. You can do that, okay? I've just been a bit mean. And I think it's a journey that none of you, it's beyond none of you. It simply starts by a willingness to realize I've got to renew my mind, which is an encouragement of scripture, to think differently to how I thought before, and then hang out with people that can help me make that journey. Like you did when you went from sinner to saint. It's the same process of renewing your mind. So quickly then, because my time is, it always goes faster when you stand up here. So, going quickly. So, so when Jesus was thinking about what it means to be evangelistic, this is what some of the things I think he had in mind. Number one, okay, just write, sorry, I would have created a slide, but I had a mad week at work this week. So, number one, that you, you are moved for compassion for people that aren't saved. It's not difficult, is it? How many of you are moved for compassion? That's God's secret weapon when I don't want to do something he's asking me to do with an unbeliever. He'll just move my heart and I think, all right then. All right. You're able to share your own story of God working in your life. I'm just thinking of a normal conversational story. You're able to share other people's stories. We had Wacken Evans here, didn't we, before Christmas? I lost count of the number of people that got miraculously healed. We've got stories on our website. You've got stories that you know of. I found when I, when I started, when, when I was in a church uh, 10 or so years ago, when, when people started to regularly get healed, I started to share these stories with my neighbours on the train to work to London and with my colleagues in the office. And I found the more stories I shared, the more interested they got in God. See, the danger is, is you don't share stories about God and you think people are not interested, which is actually backwards logic from a kingdom point of view. You generate interest by sharing a story. Do you understand that? I might have to think about that one and say that away. And I shared quite a few stories. Then we were having a team lunch once. This is just in a, in a bar in London. And someone was talking about something supernatural. And this girl said, said to everyone else on the table, Mark goes to a church where they see people healed regularly. Why don't you ask him about some of his stories? But you've got to share your stories to get to the point where that can happen. How about laying hands on people and praying for them to feel the presence of God? How about that? That doesn't feel too, too crazy. Someone's done it. Phil's done it. Phil will teach you how to do it. Many people need to be, ex- to be experienced into the kingdom, if you can use that. Some people need a conversation. Some people need logic. Some, but many people need an encounter, is my experience. So when I've done treasure hunting before, in time as well as I'm here in, in Gravesend, people that are prayed for come back to say I want to be prayed for again because I want to feel that presence again okay these things go on you might not be aware of them how about the ability to receive a supernatural download while you're in a, while you're in a shopping queue you can feel the anxiety levels going up now <laughs> because I think that's normal if I got you to if I got you into pairs right now and just said listen to God for each other and quickly pray 90 plus percent of you would hear something. It would probably be 99.9% accurate, and you'd very relax. Some of you might have a bit of nerves, but that's okay. And you pray for each other, and you'd both be encouraged. That would not be a stretch for you. But it was a stretch once upon a time for most of us. And we've got to, again, go on this journey where we can hear a word of God in a, in a shop. So two days before Christmas, I popped into a DIY store just to buy some things for repairing my house. I go up to the counter, and I think... 
this lady's got pain in her wrists. So I said to her, excuse me, it might sound like a strange question, but have you got pain in my wrist? And she goes, yes, I've got pain in my wrist. And it goes all out my arm. And I prayed for her and she did this. And she didn't feel any pain. And she goes, that's amazing. And then she went really quiet and didn't know what to say. And I said to her, God cares about you and he doesn't want you to be in pain. Because, and it's important what's going on here, and I'll, I'll cover this shortly, is we need to introduce people to the character of God. We're so used to believing in a really positive way that God is good. But that's not the majority view outside of this building. And actually people need to experience the character of God before they respond to him is, is where I'm going. Just to finish this off, a couple more points. Um, so how about to be able to share simply about Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and second coming. I don't mean you have a theological thesis. I mean, can you just say in one sentence why Jesus came to earth, or why he died, or he came to put the reality of God on display? Simple statements. If someone asked you a question, who was Jesus, could you just give a simple answer? I don't mean quoting a Bible verse. I mean just a simple description of it, that no one's going to judge you on its theological accuracy. Because no one's going to hear your conversation. But sometimes I think we build up to be such a big problem being able to share the gospel. But actually a few simple statements goes a long way. How about to be able to answer some difficult questions? I'm quite interested in apologetics. But that's not everybody's cup of tea. And none of you need to answer every difficult question. But how about learning some of them? Suffering is a massive issue in our society. People think God authors, authors it, which we know isn't true. Have you got and thought through a way of answering that question? I'm not going to give you an answer now. It's going to play, just give you a hunger to find out. The Holy Spirit also says, when the scripture says the Holy Spirit will remind us of things. So I don't put myself or feel myself under pressure in an evangelistic situation because I'm waiting for what Holy Spirit has to say. So just to give you an example, again, when I was out on the street in Gravesend, we, we were, I was with, I think it was with you, it was David actually over there. We, I think we, we, we did some spiritual readings about a girl. Um, I think I got a message in a bottle, that film, and I, I think I was with you, wasn't I? Um, and the conversation kind of hit a brick wall because we revealed something about our life and I thought she was going to let us pray for her and there's going to be a wonderful God moment. And it hit a wall. And then God just dropped the names Julie and Juliet in my head. And I said to her, do these names mean anything to you? And she goes, Julie's, sorry, Juliet's my sister's name and we used to call her Julie at home. There were just things that went across my mind. And she was quite moved by that. And her sister was a religious very difficult religious person and I thought that's the reason she won't accept prayer from us so when you hit a brick wall do you expect to be able to God to drop the answer into your spirit or put it across your mind in a moment again I don't think that's beyond anybody because majority if not all of you know how to hear God so that's what I think it means to be evangelistic and I don't think that's a stretch as I've said already for any of you in the room to simply learn to answer a few questions, to know how to share your other people's stories, to be able to lay hands on someone and pray for an encounter, and to hear a download from heaven in an evangelistic moment. I think that's what the evangelistic DNA is about. That's why I think going from not being evangelistic to evangelistic is a very, very straightforward journey. But you have to deal with your fear um, and some of your emotions with it. I remember when I first, I heard, I remember this was years ago now, somebody gave me a talk by someone called Bill Johnson, who I didn't know who he was, we were talking 15 years ago, um, about 
standing between the bridge between heaven and earth and bringing the kingdom to people. And I understand all the language, I understand how that works, but I didn't know how it worked. And I listened to this set of CDs for, I think, four times. It was a seven-part CD series, and I still didn't get it. I thought, how does this work? How does this work? And I walked into a card shop, and I bought a card for one of my, my children or my wife, I can't remember, put it on the counter, and God said to me, ask the shopping system why she hates herself. <laughs> and in that moment, in that moment, I thought, that's how it works. And I had this, part of me went through this joy moment of, I've got it, this is how it works. So then all this fear rose up in me. And I thought, now I've learned, it work, now I've learned how it works, I've now got to learn how to manage my fear, because I didn't say anything. But I got halfway along my journey, because I realised how it works. <laughs> but I've learned to deal with my fear. And I love taking courage. I don't, I actually like, when, 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 this is me, I'm not saying you have to do it like me. But if it doesn't need courage, I don't always want to go for it. <laughs> it's almost like I need courage to switch, switch on the evangelisticness in me. But that's me. Don't, you don't have to do that. Okay, how are we doing? Look, oh, I'm on time. Amazing. So, I just want to talk about and briefly discuss, because this could be a talk on its own, and talk about being cautious about relying on formulaic evangelistic tools. So what I mean by that is tools that have been helpfully, helpfully in the past packaged together to provide simple ways of describing the gospel. It's not that I don't ever use them, but I rarely use them because I don't see the pattern of that in the Bible, which is why I don't rely on them very often. And I think the danger is, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples in a minute, is if you just use a pre-packaged tool, it has three major issues which Jesus modelled, which I'll come to in five minutes. It ignores the cultural context you're in, or has the danger of ignoring the cultural context you're in, it has the danger of ignoring the, uni- the uniqueness of the individual in front of you, and can take away the dependence on the Holy Spirit. That's the danger of using formulaic tools. So how many of you, for example, have heard of the Roman road? Anybody here the Roman Road, which is just a number of verses in Romans where you step through and you can explain the gospel. Now that was created, in, I think it was in the UK, it might have been America, but in a culture where most people went to Sunday school and therefore would be familiar with those Bible verses. I don't think that will work in our current generation for most people, unless you're an older generation that have gone to Sunday school. So it's ignoring the, the um, cultural context. It's a bit like... If Peter took his Pentecost preach, which was to Jews, where he quotes loads of Old Testament scripture would have been familiar, popped off to somewhere else like Corinth and done the same message, it might not have worked. Because his message was designed for a Jewish audience that was looking for the Messiah. Do you understand that? Cultural context is, is important. What about Paul? I think Paul was a genius. Though he wasn't an evangelist, he was a genius. He, he would say things like, I becomes all, all things to all men, to share the gospel. So I'll give a couple of examples. He took a Jewish vow when he went to Antioch and shaved his head to be acceptable to Jews. That'd be brave. You won't want to see my head shaved. It's not very pretty. So when he went to Athens, he didn't shave his head. He looked around all their altars and preached the gospel from an altar there called the unknown God. 
And I, in that message in Athens, I can't see a single Bible verse in the Old Testament that he quoted. So he preached a message without referring to a single Bible verse. It's interesting, isn't it? The thing is, as Christians, is the Bible for us is, is priceless. It's a reference point for God speaking to us, for a pattern for our lives. How many times have you been in a moment that's difficult and a Bible verse just comes in? You find comfort in it. But for most non-Christians, it's not a reference point. So if you want to speak to someone, you've got to find their reference point. It doesn't mean that you don't quote biblical truth, but you don't necessarily pick up the Bible and use that unless people are familiar with it. So what's our cultural worship? It's things like social media. We mentioned that this morning. It's things like sport, music, film, TV, and theatre. It's probably need some more drama, as in, the, as in acting drama, not, not bad drama in the church. So if I preach an evangelistic message, I normally, film is my normal go-to thing. Because that's where God often speaks to me. And you can find most movies on the TV are littered with, with biblical truth. You just need to pull them out. Um, just to give an example. What's the, I can't, the, the, the blue lanky people, what's the film that was a few years ago? Avatar. Where somebody leaves one body in all their limitations and then can come into a blue body. It's the most powerful illustration I've ever seen of someone becoming born again. You can just find this stuff. So think about when you watch stuff and you're entertained, what can you pull out of biblical truth and how can you use that? I had a friend who led someone to Christ through the police song, Message in a Bottle. Again, didn't quote a single Bible verse, but found the biblical truth in the song and shared the gospel because you find a reference point for who they are. Got a few more minutes. I've got I'll give another example. What about eternity questions? So things like, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven and hell? They're quite common questions used used in evangelism. Again, I'm not saying I would never use them, but my my issue is is Jesus asked people to follow him. He rarely, if at all, gave people an ultimatum about heaven and hell. Massive difference between those two things, and we could talk a lot a lot on that. Jesus put God's character on display and then asked people to respond to what they saw. So being asked to follow Jesus was in the context of seeing the miraculous, of hearing teaching about God's goodness, just to, just to put on some of the phrases we use today. There wasn't a response to God with no context or no knowledge about who you're being asked to respond to. So you don't find that in the Bible. Not at all. So how can we ask people to respond to the goodness of God if they don't even know who God is? I think we need to display God before we do that. So how did Jesus do it? So John 4 is the go-to chapter for evangelists that, that explains the marvel of how Jesus does it. Look at his example. I haven't got time to read it. With the woman at the well. He referenced the Samaritan culture twice in conversation with a Samaritan woman. He answered her specific questions, acknowledging her uniqueness. And then he had a download about her relationship issues. That's how you do an evangelistic moment. You understand the cultural context of the person you're speaking to. You understand their uniqueness and deal with their individualness and their questions. And then you have a supernatural download. That's my model for all the evangelism that I do. There's those three things. Just to give you another example, slightly out of the context of evangelism, off on a mission to um, 
Canada in March. Um, so I will spend some time with Rebecca King before I go because I want to understand the culture of the people I'm going to speak to. Now, it's not an evangelistic moment because it's a training co- conference and mission. But the point being is, is I don't want to turn up and think they're English people when they're not. Does that make sense? So let's finish off. Just, just to make this last point then, we, we want to teach people to follow Jesus as a lifestyle. As a lifestyle. Because we always have to keep saying yes to Jesus. And Jesus asked us to create disciples. He hasn't asked us to get people over the salvation line. It's very, very important. And I would say the danger of prepackaged tools is that they may help get people over the salvation line, but they may not help disciple people. So, so I'm not saying ignore them completely. I'm just saying don't rely on them. My, my personal passion is, as we, as, as the church develops, is to create a culture here where unbelievers can come among us for, for short periods of time or long periods of time just to see what God's like. And if some of them get saved in a few weeks or some of them get saved in a few years, it doesn't matter the time frame. The point being is, is part of our normal Christianity and our normal meeting culture and our small groups and our big meetings is that non-Christians can just be here to check out what God's like because they'll see God on display. And it's important when you consider a natural birth that if a baby is born prematurely, it's considered an unhealthy and unhelpful thing and a danger to the life of the baby. And if we try and push people over the line too quickly with a a prepackaged tool, the danger is is that they won't grow up and become a disciple. Just a few challenges I'm throwing in this morning. So we live in a culture where people are currently open to the gospel than they have been probably for decades. We live in a global time where more people come to Christ than any other time in human history. Do you know it's a lie that the harvest isn't ready? The harvest is not ready. Did I get that right? Double negative. People today in Gravesend and where we work and the places we live are ready to receive Jesus. They always have been and always will be. We just need to engage with them. So just to, just to wrap up, because I'm two minutes over, is we've launched some initiatives last year that will continue through this year. We've, we've launched um, a course called Developing a Supernatural Evangelistic Lifestyle, which is for people that struggle being evangelistic, which again will start again in September this year as part of this, the Connect Groups. We're running a, an evangelism school on a Sunday night every two months, that, and the next one's this evening. And those are geared towards people that want to go on this journey that I've described. Okay, the evangelism school isn't a school in the sense you sign up and do it for a year. It's something you can dip in and dip out of, depending on your availability. So if you're free tonight or you're free in two months. So my invitation to you is, is if you want to go on this journey in 2017, there are these places that you can come to where you can learn how to nurture and grow that evangelistic DNA within your system quick activation to finish so do you want to whatever do you want to shut your eyes or or just engage with holy spirit i'm going to get you to ask holy spirit some questions to finish so ask holy spirit this question so the question is thank you for making me unique how can i best supernaturally make you known so ask holy spirit that question and listen for an answer so thank you for making me unique how can i best supernaturally make you known I'm going to ask you another question. Again, if you don't hear anything, you can take these away. Is there an unbeliever I know 
that will be open to be prayed for. So I'm hoping God's going to drop a name in your mind right now. So is there an unbeliever I know that I will be open to being prayed for? And then final question. Who do I know Jesus, or who do I know Holy Spirit, that is, that is nearer to the kingdom than I think they are? So who do I know that is nearer to the kingdom than I think they are? So how many of you heard something on any one of those questions? That's a good number. This might sound really obvious, but God just invited you to partner with him in his dream of reconciling the world to himself. God just gave you some clues for you to act on to partner with him for his dream. And I'll suggest to you that's that's a privilege and an honor to be invited by God to take part in his dream. To see it as something that's exciting and go away and act on it. Thank you very much.